0: Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking, Mission. This is Jackson.
1: Hey, this is Harry.
0: And we are joined by a good friend of ours, Jim Mullins. This is such a treat. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about him. Jim is one of the lead pastors at Redemption Tempe, which is the church that we attend, actually. He's co-authored a book with Michael Goheen called The Symphony of Mission, playing your part in God's world in the world. He has worked as a pastor, entrepreneur, a nonprofit leader, and actually as a basketball scout in Turkey. <laughs> He's married to Jenny and has a daughter named Eliana. And they spend their time watching basketball, especially ASU basketball, and cooking Middle Eastern food and being completely ineffective gardeners, is what Jim likes to say. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> That's my
1: kind of gardening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Jim's got all kinds of things to share. Unfortunately, we're limited uh, in how much time we can talk to him because he's got plenty of stories. So Jim, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's really an honor.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, We really, you know, your book, as soon as I read it, I said, okay, this is something that everybody needs to read and I want everybody to know about. So when we started the podcast, I said, okay, this guy's going to be interviewed. And if I have my way multiple times over, 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 Mm -hmm. over a period of time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So just tell us, uh, you know, this is a podcast where a lot of people are concerned about missions issues and theological issues. And, and even though you're a pastor, as we said, you were, you served in Turkey. Uh, Tell Mm -hmm. us about your experience in Turkey.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I love the country of Turkey. I see, God's glory and creativity embedded in so many aspects from the geography to the to the people to the culture um, and uh, common grace everywhere and um, it was really a sweet time we went there as a you know initially we went as missionaries and had some paradigm shifts while there and so ended up having some Really pressing into to business as mission, uh, where I started working as a basketball scout, and my wife worked at the university, and we were part of a, a sweet team and a sweet season. We were there for about three
1: years.
0: Mm, gotcha.
1: I love real quick. I love one of the phrases that you use in the book, and you you call it missional attention deficit disorder. Yeah. And and <laughs> I love that description because I think anyone who has spent time in the missions world can relate to that. And you you gave kind of a really brief, well, we did we you know, we did some church planning, we did some university work, then we did bam. And so this sense of of kind of um running ragged like and grasping
0: a potpourri of mission strategy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: We had, uh, we started this group called the Moravian community, which was all people in their early twenties who were really passionate, who really wanted to see Jesus glorified. And uh, it was, it grew to be a group of about 80 to a hundred people who lived in the international student neighborhood near ASU and wanted to go overseas and follow Jesus there. About 20 or so people ended up doing it. But anytime you get a hundred super zealous, super (laughs) ignorant people, um, (laughs) this is like a missions mobilization dream. Uh, So- Or nightmare. Or nightmare, (laughs) one or the other, yeah. (laughs) Right. So basically every- movement, every passionate pitch that we heard, we 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 loved it. We embraced it. So and and we ended up bouncing from thing to thing. So it went from, you know, it started off church planting and focusing on the unreached. We were super passionate about that. Then someone told us about the importance of the cities. So we said, we're not just going to move to Turkey, but we're going to go to the influential city. Someone told us about the importance of uh, church planting, because that's really where, where mission is at. So we said mm-hmm. we're going to plant churches, then business. So we're going to start businesses. <laughs> and then it was campuses. So we're going to work on campus, and then eventually, by the end, my team's looking at me and they're saying, "Look, you want us to focus on the unreached people groups in the influential city, while starting businesses, while working on campus, while serving the poor, moving into the to the most distressed areas, seeking all the justice?" And they're like chill out, man, and just can we focus on
0: something.
2: So that was my missional attention deficit order disorder. It's one of the many attention deficit
0: disorders. I have, so. Yeah, and and, and at least yours was homegrown. For a lot of people in mission organizations, it's the leadership who says, "Hey, do this, do that, do this, do everything." You know, so mm. you know at least mm. you owned it. So you guys mm. were there for how many years?
2: We were there for three years. Three
0: years, okay. and, and Yeah, after what,
2: telling everyone, we would never come back and we'd be there for the rest of our lives. Oh, man. Right,
0: right. Yes.
2: You yes. should never let a 21-year-old make declarations for what they're going to do for the rest of their life. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that is so true. I that find is so I true. find a
0: pattern. If, if you say something at 21, it's definitely not going to happen. It's going to go the other way around. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> one. Yes.
2: Yeah. So
0: yeah. tell us about like, what, your decision to leave and the circumstances around that.
2: Yeah, it was. There were a number of circumstances, but if I could kind of focus in on one aspect of it, at that point in life, you know, all of the big dreams that people have in their 20s, it felt like I was living into those. You know, mm. um, had helped start some nonprofits that were doing really good work. Was watching a lot of basketball while sharing the gospel with people. Uh, There were some folks who, uh, Muslim folks who were really seeming to just see Jesus and was in the room with some pretty, you know, important people to try to talk about peacemaking issues between Christians and Muslims. And really, I had this insatiable hunger for significance. I lived Mm -hmm. in Tempe my whole life, uh, or lived in the Phoenix area for most of my life, but had always viewed it as the junior varsity of places, um, that Mm. once, once I get past the time I have to do here, then I can go off and be with important people and do important things and go to important places. And, um, we, we came back to the U S for a while with the intention of returning to Turkey and starting a branch of the nonprofit over there. And really that was when my daughter was diagnosed with autism. Um, And the doctors and the experts were basically saying how much I was traveling, especially in this pursuit of being with important people in important places, was not good for her. She needed stability. Um, Mm. She needed rootedness. So uh, made the commitment to stay in Tempe, this place that I had viewed as the junior varsity of places, sink my roots in deep. And really, I think, you know, the initial thing we started to do is we started to grow gardens in the backyard with my daughter and I and spend time out there. And it turned into this physical embodied prayer of that being what God would do in us and in me in particular of putting roots deep in this place. And the phrase that really stuck out to me at that time was the phrase of uh, uh long branches come from deep roots. Um, mm. And I have that up on my wall here in the office. I felt like that was real, that really came from my daughter and her mentoring me in the ways of the kingdom, and especially when it comes to place and people, helped me to realize that I was in pursuit of these important places and these important people. But Tempe, if it belongs to Jesus, is an important Mm. sacred place, and that the important people, that I needed to be with were the people I was overlooking the most. My wife, my daughter, my neighbors, the nations that God was bringing to this place that I've called home yet treated like a, like a motel or a resort rather than a true home. Most of my life. Mm.
0: Mm. Uh, Listen to you, share your story, uh, both what you were doing in uh, Turkey and also the circumstances with uh, eliana i can just see the seedbed for you know everything you've done since really really formative it seems like that by itself would be the motivation for you to write because Hmm. there's so much so much of your story so much personalness in your story so how much of of that did affect your decision to write a book about missions and symphony mission because they seem like there's a close connection there
2: yeah absolutely i i feel like I was writing the book to the 20 something version of myself that was leading the Moravians and all of those folks. Um, Mm. Really, you know, GK Chesterton has this quote that it's something along the lines of uh, that the world is not void of uh, wonders, but it's void of wonder.
1: Mm. And,
2: and that really what, what we needed at that time was not to find the big significant thing, but to see the significance in all of life and to have eyes that were shaped by the biblical story rather than the other stories that might shape our way of view in the world. And in doing so, we could see that God is God's story is a story of, of mission that we get to step in and
0: participate in. So yeah, it, it influenced it quite a bit. Now, you used the metaphor symphony to describe this work of mission. How does symphony describe mission?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I have absolutely no musical background or ability (laughs) or anything. And and I think a lot of people have come up to me since choosing that metaphor and they want to talk music and classical music and I I can't hang. Um, (laughs) But I think it's a good metaphor because the way that I had viewed mission was almost like Mission was a rock band. With every rock band, you know that everyone's important. The drummer's important, the bass player's important, but there's usually one person that's important and the band is named after them. The Dave Matthews Band or, I don't know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and, mm-hmm.
1: I don't know,
2: Marky Mark and the Funky Punch. I don't know. There you go. But, <laughs> but you, you always know that There's the Marky Mark, there's the Tom Petty, that's the main person. And then the rest of the stuff supports that. And I think the way that I was thinking about mission so much of my early years was that we needed to find out what the main thing was and that all of these different movements and theological emphases, missiologies would have a different thing. It's justice, it's evangelism, it's church planting, whatever it would be. And the question of who is the lead singer, who's the front runner, was what we were trying to answer, but it was the wrong question. Mm. Uh, I think if you view Mission as a rock band and say, which one's the really important thing, Mm. that's one way. But the other way, the paradigm shift was to think about it as a symphony. With the symphony, you're never really asking which one of these instruments is more important than the other, as much as how are they mutually enhancing one another? And rather than there being one musician who's at the center of everything, you only have one center, and that is the composer or conductor. And in God's mission, the composer and conductor is Christ, who stands at the center of his mission and has all of these ways that we can participate in his mission that he's bringing together and they're not in competition with one another. They're not ranked over one another, but they're mutually beautifying, harmonizing, enhancing one another. And that's things like justice, work, art, evangelism. Those are all different instruments in God's great symphony of mission.
0: Well, you know, listening to you talk, I can't help but think of Mike Goheen who you co-wrote the book with. Yeah, uh, What's, it seems like there's a a robust theology that is shaping and driving the book.
2: Yeah, would you, yeah. Would you kind of unpack that? Yeah, I think it's uh, deeply rooted in the Reformational tradition, uh, the Dutch theologians, and a lot of influence with uh, from Leslie Newbegin. But ultimately, that mission is God's. Uh, mission isn't something. For the church, but the church is something for the mission uh, that God is on a mission to renew and restore all that was broken and lost in the fall, and that He forms a, a distinctive people to participate in His mission. So He's the one accomplishing it. It is His uh, that the Bible is the story of God's mission. It's not just that there are particular verses that talk about mission, but the the whole story is about God's restoration of all things. And that he's forming a people to participate with him. Mm -hmm.
1: I think one of the things I loved about um, the way in which you went about this book is it feels like it takes away the hustle that I think we find when we're in ministry as a vocation. There can be a sense of competition with people Mm -hmm. of, you know, this is this is how many churches I planted in Turkey and this is how many baptisms there we like to think that the hustle is, is preserved in, you know, for business, but I think that the ministry world, we have decided to enter into it just as much. We just put a God label on it. Yeah. But I I think when I was reading your book, I really felt a sense of almost like a, a, an older sister kind of putting her hands on my shoulder and going, Mm -hmm. okay, relax. This is all God's, Mm -hmm. your work your conversations, your people, your community, this is all God's work. And I really appreciated the way that you kind of led people through, through understanding mission in that way to stop the hustle. Mm.
0: Yeah, you mentioned three ways of participating in God's mission. And the first is stewardship. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that section of the book really unpacks a a theology of work, a theology yeah. of vocation. And most people in the church these days, I think, either see work as a part of the fall, you mm-hmm. know, like oh, we're stuck with work or as a means to an end, earning money to give to the church who does, you know, the real work of ministry or or missionaries getting visas so they can mm-hmm. do some other kind of task, okay? But you say that good work is a preview of the kingdom.
2: Yeah, Which
0: is yeah. Kind of a mind-blowing statement for a lot of people who read your book. Go, Say that again. What's so significant about work, and why is it a preview of the kingdom?
2: Yeah. I, well, there's there's a couple ways I could go with that. Um, I think that's my second favorite point uh, on on work. So I'll I'll go there. I think whenever you see good work, there's this, this internal wow that we feel. This this awe whenever you see good work. And uh, what is that? Well, ultimately, I think it's uh, the recognition of the image of God in other people who are doing good work, or it's a recognition of the way things are supposed to be uh, of his his kingdom. Whenever a teacher does excellent work and cultivates the minds of, of the students, Um, what that's to where they're able to explore and discover and be in awe of God's world. That's what the kingdom is going to be like. Whenever you provide, if, if someone either through security or through good structural engineering, makes someone feel protected in the building that they're in, or that that you're, you're giving a preview of the day that's coming when we will experience complete safety. Mm -hmm. Um, So anything that is right, that's the way it's supposed to be, that you get a sample of when you see good work is a hint, a preview of the kingdom. It's interesting because, you know, one of my favorite, you know, favorite parts of scripture is in Revelation 21 and 22, where it's talking about the continuity of culture into the new creation. It's not just that we're cherubs floating around. But it talks about the glory and the honor of the nations. Uh, I believe it's echoes of uh, Psalm or Isaiah 60, uh, 61. The glory and the honor of the nations, the best of what humans can culturally produce somehow gets incorporated into our eternal worship of Jesus. It's, there's a continuity of the things that we make that are good, right things that are part Mm. of the cultural mandate that we've been given that in some mysterious way, have a continuity Mm. into the new creation. And so, you know, I've heard people say, you know what, I'm just going to focus on spirit. I'm just going to focus on eternal things while I'm Mm. on earth, but eternal things, might be a pie recipe or a guitar or a basketball you know Mm. there's some continuity when the in the best of human culture into the eternal our eternal life with god and that when we do good work that it provides a, a little sample a preview of what that might be
0: I want I want you to maybe share a story illustrate this in a second, but I'll just say amen to this because when I was teaching in China, it was striking that when the students would talk about what impacted them the most in class, oftentimes, very often, students would say, you are so prepared for mm. the lessons. And I remember thinking, you noticed that? Like, what mm. student ever notices that? But they said, we mm. felt so loved that you really were thorough and prepared and, and we can tell how hard you worked to make this point and do that and do this. And that was just, it was mind blowing every time. Mm, yes. Yeah.
1: So this, Jim, brings to my mind a lot of questions about platforms mm. and how it is that we view platforms as missionaries in an overseas context. Because I think, you know, the pushback would be, but we need to get them like the words of the gospel quickly. And so you have a section in your book, a a quote, actually, I want to lead with. And then I want to hear your response to that pushback is you say your work will never be a platform for evangelism until it is first more than a platform for evangelism. Hmm. And so what do you say to people? You know, you also mentioned, how beautiful it would be if strip clubs could be repurposed into museums that celebrate the dignity of women and you go through several things like a prison could be turned into an elementary school and so what do you do when someone says well why not a strip club into a church why not a prison into a church why you know and and let's really hone in on the words of the gospel i mean i clearly you would think yes that's would be great so why angle it in the in a way to see it as a museum that celebrates women as a beautiful gospel-bearing thing.
2: Yeah, so I'll go back a little bit and and I think one of the things that is most striking as as we reflect on what it means to be an image bearer. There are a lot of angles you could take on that. But um the I the, the early idea of that that phrase That it was like a, you know, uh, in the ancient Near East that kings would put their images, statues of themselves in in places that they would conquer in order to say that this place belongs to me. And the nature of the statue would say this is what that king is like. And for human beings to be made in the image of God, borrowing language from that concept is almost to say that human beings uh, made in God's image are... the the portraits, the self portraits, the statues that God has spread out into the world to show what he is like, and that he is the owner and ruler of the place. So that when you look at humans, and you see human excellence, ultimately, what you're seeing is a reflection, a glimpse of what God is like. Mm. And so when you see human creativity, you're seeing a glimpse of God's creativity, human wisdom, you see a glimpse of God's wisdom. Well, how that relates to the platform thing is the way in which you go about your work or your your culture making. It's obviously beyond employment, uh, but it's Mm -hmm. the stuff we do to cultivate God's world. Whatever we do in that is making a statement about what God is like, because as image bearers, we're representing what God is like. And so to act as if work isn't important creativity isn't important like the stuff of actual work isn't that big of a deal it's just a a functional platform uh so often lives out a visible lie before others or at least a Mm. distortion that creates quite a bit of dissonance from the words that you're actually saying Mm. i found this when i was overseas that when we, well, when I first went there, I, I was sort of tent faking, um, and I, I had I had a business that didn't do any business. It was import export, and we sent some trinkets to some friends every once in a while. But when people, when Turks would actually ask how oh. our our faith, or the gospel, connected with our work and our daily life, I had a hard time answering with integrity. And I could tell in their eyes that they could see the dissonance between what I was saying and the way
0: I was living it out. Mm. So effectively, it seems like you're saying that work is a, a commentary of God's character. And uh, absolutely. Well, wow, That has a lot of impact for also when you think about discipleship uh, and working with local believers and whatnot. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The That was, I guess, another follow-up I had is when we decide to see platforms simply as, you know, this kind of side thing we're doing, we don't do it well, we just do it so that we can stay. What do you think that communicates as well to our co-laborers, our local co-laborers? So your maybe your your Turk friends that came alongside you guys and did ministry life or worked in the city, how did you see that impact? your relationship with them.
2: Yeah, I think sometimes it created uh, a hierarchy. Yeah. So to say that if you're in this long enough and you put in your time doing the you know, the the menial mundane stuff, then you can get to a level where people will give you money and you can just and then you can do the like super mm-hmm. christian stuff. Mm. I think it had like a subtle implicit way of communicating that or on the other hand, if I was, it could create a, a way of saying uh, like a subtle ethnic superiority of like, I get to be paid to do this stuff. Well, you've got to grind it out in the daily life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: totally. Well, uh, let's look at this second way that you talk about participating God's mission and service. I'd love for you to share any story that you have on this, cause you have so many, but for many people, acts of service is treated as like, you know, secondary to evangelism. They'll say, mm-hmm. Hey, it's nice, but you know, but they'll say why focus on worldly needs when you have all these souls going to hell? You know, that's, that's kind of the common way of putting it. How do you respond to that? Why should service be a part of mission?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So if to take a step back, if stewardship is really the dramatizing of God's character, then service is really the dramatization of the cross. Mm. Um, as we give of ourselves, whether it's our time, our money, our effort, whatever it is, we pour that out for others. We're living a mini drama of what Christ has done for others. And uh, Colossians 1, when, when Paul talks about how he's filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, it really stands out to me because Obviously, if it's not Paul saying that, it seems like heresy. Like there's something lacking in Christ's mm. afflictions. But when he's saying that, you have to ask, what is he getting at? And he's saying the thing that's lacking is the presentation of Christ's sufferings mm. uh, to those who don't who haven't heard. And the way he talks about how he fills up what is lacking, it's through his own afflictions, through his own suffering. In other words, as we suffer, even in the small ways of pouring out the little bits of stuff that we could retain for ourselves, as we pour that out for others, as we serve others, as we love others, we're dramatizing the Christ who poured himself out for others. Mm-hmm. And so it's one thing to to proclaim the cross, but I think it needs a visual demonstration,
0: tangible demonstration. Um can you share a story? Uh you know, how you've seen this play out? Well, there's a couple angles
2: we could go. Um, I mean, I think the, the one that stands out the most is ever since I've been an adult, I've been wanting to proclaim the gospel to Muslim folks. And the hangup is always the cross. Um, <laughs> it's one of the hang-ups. the Trinity is also one, but, the cross, like how could a God so beautiful and holy be tortured to death, uh, and how does that even make sense? And several years ago, there was a group of, I don't know, bikers who were going to gather outside of a mosque here locally, they were going to protest, they were going to burn Qurans, they were going to draw really terrible pictures of Muhammad doing terrible things and try to evoke a violent response from the Muslims who were entering the mosque to worship. Most of those people who were in that mosque had come from refugee backgrounds, very traumatized by violence. And they were being surrounded by a, a group with guns. They who were planning this on Facebook. They were getting media coverage. And I posted my disgust uh, on Facebook, felt like I'd actually done something. So <laughs> um, some people started, you know, challenging me. They said, look, This is happening in our own city. Like we should probably do something more than just post on Facebook. And furthermore, I actually knew the president of that mosque. And it still never even crossed my mind to actually do something. Mm -hmm. Here I am talking a big game, but like, I'm just talking. But was convicted. We set up a meeting. My friend Adam and I, we set up a meeting with the president of the mosque. And we kind of devised this plan that the Christians would Go out there and help. And we would do it by lining up in front of the, the mosque before anything could go down so that we could be a human shield for those who were worshiping. And our, our goal was this there were two. One is to be a peaceful presence and to de escalate anything that violent that could happen that night. And the second one was that we would be a human shield so that if a bullet was fired, that it would have to go through the body of a Christian before it got to a body, the body of a Muslim. And those were our two goals. As the night unfolded, I'm thinking nobody's going to show up to this thing because it was hot. It was like hundred plus degrees. ISIS had been tweeting about it all day saying, don't go there because bad things are going to happen. And then, you know, the type of, we're not talking like these guys had nice little pistols and everything. They had like, big guns, Mm AR-15s. I don't even know the names of these, but like Mm -hmm. bulletproof vests, masks, those sorts of things. And as the night show, as the night progresses, as things are about to go down, we see just, I don't know, we see hordes of people in blue shirts. We told them to wear blue shirts, just streaming down the street. And there were about 250 protesters that came out 250 300 there were about 250 300 of the blue shirt people that came out from about 15 different churches as the night unfolded it started out very intense there was a lot of yelling a lot of crazy things we would send people over to the other side uh where there where the protesters were and said bring them water the loudest people bring them water and give them an ear to listen to because they want to be heard for something and then we would just pray and the night unfolded no arrests no punches thrown no shots fired and uh it was a beautiful night but what was beautiful after that was the hordes of emails because this was being covered by media and the, the emails and the connections that people wanted to make in the city with muslims who wanted to ask why did you do what you did and they invited me to speak places and for the next several months I had literally thousands of opportunities to either speak somewhere with hundreds of people in the room or like have smaller meetings to where I was able to answer the question of why did you do what you do did? And as we were talking about, like, why would Christians want to be a sponge for bullets that would be fired at Muslims? Mm -hmm. And as we talked about that, we basically were able to say, this is what Christ did for us that he stood in the way of death for us and absorbed death into his own body that we might have life. And, and I don't know all how the Holy spirit moves with this stuff, but this was the commentary. The living self sacrifice was the commentary that made sense of the cross for so many of those folks.
0: And a few of them even ended up coming to faith.
1: Hmm.
0: One of the things I, I like about the book is that you not only speak about how to show the message, but how to you speaking it, and something you're touching on here, and uh, I come from kind of a conservative background where people tend to polarize everything. You either it's either about evangelism or bleeding heart service, and mm. you really interweave these these all these aspects together, uh, seamless, to where it seems kind of nonsense to dichotomize like that. Yeah. Uh, so let's go to that that third way of participating in God's mission, the spoken word. Mm-hmm. And after that, such a powerful story, this will sound kind of trite, but it's just so you, Jim, in that you kind of open <laughs> that section with talking about how wearing a clown suit can help us better share God's word. This is a little bit different, you know, kind of tone, but how does wearing a clown suit help somebody share God's word better?
2: Yeah, it's, a lot of times people are asking, how can I, how can I share the gospel more? like how can I go how can I get more opportunities to share the gospel? And uh, I had this little thought experiment one day and was thinking, well first of all, I was thinking, why don't they talk a lot about doing evangelism in the New Testament? There's a couple places like Colossians and 1 Peter 3 that say when when the opportunity comes up, be ready. Mm. but why, you know, they're telling people not to sleep with their family members and like food sacrifice to idols. You'd think evangelism would come up, right? (laughs) Right. But it just doesn't happen a lot. Um, And so what got me thinking about that question, as I was thinking about that question, I started to think if we just went out every day and just dressed up like a clown, wore a clown suit, the squeaky nose, the hair, all Mm -hmm. of it, and just went through our normal day. We don't have to ask the question, how do I get to have the opportunity to bring up this clown suit? How am I going to bring it up Mm. in discussion? It's so unique and so strange and peculiar that everyone's going to bring it up. The question is, do you have a good answer for why Mm. you're wearing the clown suit? And so in a similar way, I think what you see in the New Testament church is such a unique, distinct way of living, of sacrificial yeah. love, of, 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 of drawing upon the power of the spirit, that asking, how am I going to bring up Jesus is not a question they're asking, because people are going to ask them all the time, why are you so unique and distinct? It's yeah. will they have the answer? And I think the same is true for us of, of really yeah. asking the question, how can we be? a unique and distinctive people. And if we're living out stewardship and service in really radical ways, the conversations are going to happen all the time. Yeah. Mm.
1: And so it sounds like, you know, we we have to mentally think more of rather than doing evangelism as an activity, but being evangelism. Mm. And that means sometimes you're speaking up, sometimes you're doing these acts, and it's just the life that you are living. I think one of the paradigms, you know, I grew up in the nineties was that you, you did evangelism in this moment. You're, you're, we're going to drop you off at the mall. We did this several times in my youth group. We're going to drop you off the mall and you're going to do evangelism for three hours, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we would get on the bus and we go back and have pizza. And then, we no longer, quote, did evangelism because it wasn't time to do evangelism. And so it was a very segmented understanding, I think, of what evangelism means. And so I love what you're saying there is it's not something we flip on and flip off. But I think that's what, how we've talked about it for so long. Mm. And that yeah. really impedes the way that we see mission and view mission, I think.
0: Well, Mm -hmm. I think part of it is that evangelism is seen as giving set presentations. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, it's kind of like a salesman. Mm -hmm. You're selling something, and then when you're off work, you stop selling. And so, because there's a distinct way of speaking, a distinct information. It's order and sequence, so forth and so on. Now I'm doing it. Now I'm not. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you do talk about three shifts in thinking that – can help people to better proclaim the gospel. It, we'll, we'll, I want to make sure pe- we, people will hear this because it's really, really practically helpful. You talk about a shift from something that's generic to something that's especially crafted, you know, mass production versus something particular. And I, one quote you said is this, just as someone slowly and deliberately learns how to roast coffee or build mm-hmm. furniture, we should pursue rich ways of communicating. Mm. Oh, I love that. Can you kind of unpack a little bit what you what you mean here?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh I think Jesus is such good news. Mm-hmm. His who he is, his work, his ways. It is unbelievable when you unpack all of the the good news and all of who Jesus is, why would we ever talk about it in boring generic ways? Why would we, why would it have to feel like you're, you're, you're selling some trinkets on uh, an infomercial? Um, the, 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 the communication that is the most meaningful to you is the one that you put the most thought into you're, the, if you're if you're writing a card to your spouse on their on your anniversary, you're not just going to settle for you know some generic words that were on a pre-printed on a card just to pass out. I mean that's like the functional tract, you know. Mm, uh, yeah, yeah. And so the medium has to match the beauty and in the intensity uh, of the message. Now I'm not saying that God hasn't used some. Some good tracks and some mass-produced evangelism. Uh, he certainly has. What I'm saying as a shift is a shift, maybe not a hundred percent of the way, but a shift more in that direction. Of instead of thinking, how do I get the most generic message out to the most amount of people? To say, with the particular people that God has put in my path, what are the questions that they are asking to which Jesus is the answer? Mm. And how can you articulate that in the most meaningful way that connects and intersects with the big questions and images of their
0: life? Mm. Well, and so that really connects well with that, your second shift about a shift from thinking of evangelism as mar- not as marketing, but rather as storytelling. If I remember correctly, you talked about, we typically think of evangelism as like distributing coupons. You know, mm. you get a good cheap bargain here, right? And mm-hmm. I think part of the driving motive for that approach to evangelism, well, there's a few things. I think one, if you don't have a depth of theological and biblical understanding, then you have to reduce it to something that's real easy to remember. Mm-hmm. But there's this other aspect. is a question I get all the time: is what if you only had three minutes? What if you only had five minutes? What are you going to say? Uh, <laughs> you
2: know, yeah, uh, yeah. it seems
0: like if that's the way you're thinking, you better have a quick marketing elevator pitch. Who has time for storytelling? Well, you know, what do you say to the people? Yeah,
2: I mean, I would say that that if you're gonna wield that critique at anybody, you have to wield it at Paul, and you have to wield it at Jesus uh, as mm-hmm. well. Of Paul spending the time to deeply think about what, what's the Greek poetry. What are the big questions that mm. they're asking? What are the images uh, that connect most to the biblical story and and Jesus looking at figs and birds and, you know, these, these sorts of things in a real agrarian uh, society. I think if it all depends on us and it's like a sales commission sort of thing, then man, you should probably think about how do you get the most generic, uh, quick, high pressured pitch out as quickly as possible. But if the Bible is the, the, the story of the world, the true story of the world, it's the narrative that gives meaning to all of life. Then a lot of what evangelism is, is going out and re-narrating what the world is and who gives it meaning and how you can enter into uh, union with the one who is the rescuer and the one who can make things right. And so just a shift from, from narration from marketing to re-narrating the world according to God's story. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I I so appreciate this because um, it gives us permission for the bearing of fruit in our ministries to be slow. mm -hmm. And I think of the best way to learn a new language is actually to just listen Mm -hmm. for months and months and months. Intense language programs will tell you, do not open your mouth for three months, six months, yeah. eight months, and you just listen. Mm. But because I especially am addicted to efficiency, I very easily cut the corner because I think, well, I can listen for these two hours and then I'll, I'll try and speak so I can get the best of both worlds and just be really efficient about this ministry. Deal, hmm. But I think what you are exhorting us here, Jim, is to be okay with ministry being slow, especially when you're you're talking a lot about Paul. He's in a context very often where there's a background, there's a Jewish background already. but when you're when you're in Turkey or you're in China, or you're in these places where there might not be they might have zero idea about who a a one true God is and who this Mm -hmm. person named Jesus and Abraham, these are all very foreign concepts. We should expect this to be slow work.
2: Mm -hmm. And if
1: God wants to do it fast, he'll do it fast. But our job, I think I'm I'm wondering is to listen so that as you're saying, we can narrate the stories of Jesus in an appropriate, beautiful, imaginative way.
0: Mm-hmm. I just
1: don't know if those things happen fast, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listening uh, is not efficient as uh, a lot of, of many husbands have complained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's the third shift you mentioned is you talk about when you be thinking through how do you listen to the spirit rather than just following a script. You had this one quote, you said, our role is to listen to the, ec- or for the echoes of the gospel and then tell the world. So, I mean, you got to listen to what the stories are saying, what what, what about, about their life and the world around them. And there is no script, really. I mean, if you want to say there's a script, it's different for every person.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are the the events of the gospel uh, that are unchanging, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But beyond that, there's a lot of stuff that we tend to say this has to be a part of every gospel presentation or this is the particular way it has to be announced. But the listening to the Spirit and listening to the person, that double listening is it's a little frightening, but it is uh, such a wild adventure to just know that the Spirit's preceding you and already at work in somebody's life, convicting them, bringing up questions, those sorts of things. And that if we're attentive to what the spirit's already doing, then we can end up uh, speaking into that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's a, you know, there's a question of, you know, as I step back, I think that there was a, uh, there was a moment when we were at a restaurant, I, I changed some names in the book, but I'll give it away. It was actually me and Ryan Arneson, um, (laughs) uh, Delano and Brian, um, that there was a server who we were having good dialogue with, but we ended up just sensing that God wanted us in that moment to just pay for somebody else's meal. And, you know, we told her that she could pick, that she could do whatever she wanted, pick any person in the restaurant and pay for their meal. She ends up paying for choosing someone. And then she comes over to us visibly shaken and says, like, what sort of trick is, are you guys up to? Like, what is going on? Because she had picked someone who just that day had heard that she was getting cancer, a cancer diagnosis, sitting by herself wow. eating oh, lunch. Wow. But that woman deeply knew Jesus. And Yay. was able to tell the server about God's kindness and care and provision. Uh, and she connected all of this to God caring for her. Wow. And she's able, even out of her weakness, to share the gospel with the server. Wow. Um, mm. you know, who comes back to our table and you know, we're harmonizing with this with what this woman was saying and talking even about the redemptive analogy that was emerged from that moment of paying for someone else even though it's not what they deserve or you're owed, but it's just this generosity of paying for someone else. So this this server is getting the gospel from all these different angles. And if we had gone into it saying, we have a preset script or a tract or whatever that we're gonna lay down on the table to share with the server, it would have missed what the spirit was doing in that Mm. moment and Mm -hmm. paying attention to like, what is the spirit already doing? And how can we harmonize with that? And that's where those really beautiful moments happen.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, that's amazing.
0: You know, I um, I do uh, jujitsu. And in jujitsu, like in a lot of other sports, if you're always thinking about what not to do, you're going to screw up. Mm. Rather than if you're leaning into, hey, what do I need to do? Like, you know, it's this kind of moving forward. And there's a lot of that in what you're saying. And When I was reading the book, there seemed to be like a different way of looking at salvation that seemed to shape your book compared to what I see elsewhere. Rather than focusing on what we are safe from, you seem to draw attention to this question of what do we say for? You know, Mm -hmm. what are we a part of? And that seems to be, uh, you know, I don't know if I have a question, but it just seems to be shaping the way you're thinking through quote unquote ministry strategy the conversations you have, the way you see what's otherwise seem like mundane opportunities. Am I am I off base, or is this is this am I on the right track here? What? Absolutely, I
2: love the way you put it. Yeah, Maybe. I mean you're definitely saved from some things, but not into just an, a generic existence where you're not in hell or distant from God or whatever. But you're actually in the presence of God who created a good world that he's renewing and restoring that you get to enjoy uh, in the presence of redeemed
0: people as well. That's what are we saved for? Yes.
1: Yeah. I love that.
0: Jim, you are also a pastor. And so you have the task of trying to help people have, take on this perspective you're sharing. And so give me tips, ideas, suggestions, exercises where, where, you know, local congregations can have, this sort of missional mindset, uh, and and maybe you might want to contrast it with what is not a missional mindset.
2: Yeah, so uh, if if you you're wanting to get towards some like real practices to cultivate this missional imagination, um, I've got a few. Uh, one really easy one is to, you know, when we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that's an invitation to imagine the kingdom. You know, mm-hmm. in order to pray for what the kingdom would look like on earth, you kind of have to imagine what the kingdom is and how does, how do things look restored? And so in order to cultivate those eyes, one practice I do is in my prayer. So I'll try to pick out a few headlines. Uh, generally, when I read the news, I try to read it prayerfully. And after reading the headline, try to rewrite it uh, as if it was a news story in the kingdom. Uh, mm-hmm. So you could say instead of Sunnis and uh, Shia clash uh, in Iraq, Sunni and Shia have a barbecue and then take communion afterwards because they've come to know mm. Christ together. Like, um, I love
1: that.
2: And that that trains the eyes. I think another practice, yeah. something I love doing is uh, called the carrot cake game. It's where you take two stacks of, uh, of, of cards. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why it's, it's called the carrot cake game. I think it's a, it's a game that's intended to help you reimagine all the stuff of life as a way of serving and, and loving your neighbor. And you, you basically take two stacks of cards. One stack has all of the blessings, the assets, the things that God has given you that you've used to love yourself. And it can be as obscure as possible, bicycle, uh, training, speaking a different language, so on and so forth that's in one stack. The second stack of cards is all of the aspects of the brokenness of the world that you see, the things that are affected by sin. Uh loneliness, homelessness, um prison system, whatever the thing is. and Then you shuffle the cards and you draw one of the gifts that you have and one of the problems. So it might be like a draw the a bicycle and then, you know, famine in Bangladesh and you try to say, how could I use this bicycle to address famine in Bangladesh? Mm. And what it, what it does is it actually cultivates the mind. It's a practice to cultivate the mind, to see all of your stuff differently as instruments of loving your neighbor and see the, the brokenness of the world a little bit differently. Because I think this is essentially what Jesus is doing when he's telling us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a command to creative love. You mm. have u- used all of these things to love yourself now think creatively about how you can use those to love your neighbor. So that's those would be two practices that come to mind.
0: That's fantastic. Time has so gotten away from us as I knew it would. So uh, <laughs> Carrie, would you, uh, you had one more question you wanted to ask.
1: Yeah. I, before we wrap up, I first just want to thank Jim for your generosity sitting us, with us here today, and fleshing some of this out. And as Jackson and I were talking about this book, I said, it's so easy to talk about this book because this is Jim and his family. This is how they live their lives. We have seen this time and time and time again in our time here at at his church. And the words of the book, just they are embodied in how you live your life. And so as people pick up this book, just know Jim didn't have to google cool story, you know, from from Turkey. <laughs> like he didn't have to google any of these things because he's lived this I- embodied life of Christ in such a beautiful way and he used the word innovative love. And I think that's the way that you you and your family live your life. So with that, if you were now to you know, next week, go back to Turkey <laughs> as your non-21-year-old self, how would your strategy maybe look different in the way that you approach your work in Turkey?
2: That's a good question. Um, if if I were to go back, how would we, how would it be different? Um, you know, what's interesting was that a lot of these things started to really press into yeah. in, in Turkey. I think what I would do is, you know, there there is a strong sense of love for one's nation in Turkey, uh, and and I would dive into Turkish culture with the eyes to see what are the echoes of creation that yeah. exist within Turkey uh, that ultimately point to God, uh, and how I could. Uh, like, for the, for instance, the way that Turkish fathers care for their children, it's unlike other places that I've seen, it's, it's really elevated, um, and how that's an echo of the father. So I would look for what are the echoes of creation, I would look for what are the echoes of the fall, the particular struggles that that Turks have, um, that are evidence of a fallen, broken world, and how is Jesus the good news to those things. And then even echoes within their particular national stories of like Ataturk and others uh, that have this echo of rescue of salvation that are echoes of, of, of Christ. So I think those would be some things. And instead of trying to meet with all the most so-called important people, I would move straight towards the, um, those with disability who are often overlooked and spend my time with them. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, well, Jim, thank you for being so gracious with your time. I want to let people know uh, that Jim and Mike Goheen's book is called The Symphony of Mission and it's published with Baker. Is that right? Yep, that's right. All right. So please, guys, I urge you to get that, read it, start a book club, internalize it. It'll be so well worth your time. It has rigorous thought in it, but also a ton of stories. So thank you, Jim, for joining us. And for all you guys listening in, uh, thank you and keep the conversation going.